Thank you, my son. I love you. Good morning, everybody. So, so good to see you. It's so good to see you this morning. It's so wonderful to be uh, with all the couples this weekend. And thank you so much for your heart for the Lord and your devotion to Christ and the honor of his name. And in doing so, the honor of marriage uh, for his glory. So, so grateful for that. If you are visiting today, so listen, I remember, I'm, you know, I visit churches too. And, and, uh, and especially if you're looking forward to hearing, you know, uh, the lead pastor of that church or one of the pastors of that church. And then it's guest speaker Sunday. Um, so if you're, if you're visiting for the first time, I, I got to tell you, if I lived in El Paso, Texas, this would be my church. These guys would be my pastors. Um, it, it, similar stories. They have uh, lifted my countenance up um, on several occasions when quitting seemed like the best option, not only for me and my family, but I thought it was, it was what was best for our church. And, uh, and these guys came alongside. And you ever had anybody seen in your life that maybe you're more familiar with the way a parent is with a child, the child's, you know, head's hanging down. And, and isn't it just the sweetest thing when a parent takes the, the, the cheek of the child and has the child look up? And there's something about looking up, isn't there? Uh, it seems to give fresh faith and hope. But these guys, not just helping me look up, they're helping me look up at the smiling face of God in Christ my Savior. And so, uh, so this is, we're celebrating 30 years. I've, I've served as the pastor at Sovereign Grace Church in Midland for 30 years. Uh, this, so if you ever come visit us, come visit us to, to come, come get to know the people that's put up with me for 30 years because <laughs> they're the best part of, uh, of our church besides the gospel of Christ. So, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, would you open your Bibles this morning to the gospel of John? We're going to be studying chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. And um, this morning we're coming really to the last instructions that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. And this is just hours, guys. So just try to get yourself in that kind of a frame of mind and frame of time. Really, this is just hours before his death. And he concludes by teaching them, and he's teaching us as well. How God can give us peace even in a time of tribulation because he has overcome the world. You're going to see that just declared. The scripture, the scripture reading is in my sermons, and I probably really think any sermon, probably the scripture reading is the best part of the sermon <laughs> because it is the inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. So let's remember those things as, as we read God's word this morning. Would you stand with me? Uh, sometimes I think it's good to stand, not as a religious ritual, but in recognition, this is not like any other book in the universe. No other book like this. This is the word of God. You ever doubt God's love for you? This is where you're going to hear his voice. You ever doubt that there's a plan for your life? This is where you're going to hear the plan. It's a, this is a good book, isn't it? It's such a good book. So John chapter 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord together, beginning in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, 
that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Oh, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Yeah, let's say amen to that. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, God. We want, we want to be transformed by your word. And uh, so we're asking for your word to do your work in our hearts this morning. We can't change ourselves, but we're so thankful that your living word and, and your being our living hope transforms us. And God, we, we want that transformation to result in mission. So would you do all these things for the glory of your name, that you be magnified, and for the great joy of this precious, precious group of people in this wonderful church. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, one of the most loving things that we can do is to prepare people we love for a time that when we, we will not be with them. Um, so I've been affected, and you're going to hear a little bit about the way that my dad did that with us, and even more a way that Jesus did that for all of us. I've been away, I'm trying to do that for our local church. I, I hope the Lord still has a few more good years for me, but I've already started talking to our church that, you know, we should be thinking of a succession plan. Um, it's not, nothing that I look forward to, and I don't think it's any time soon. But I just think the, that one of the ways we love people well is we want to we love them not only for the moment that we have with them, but we want to do everything we can to prepare them for a better future without us. And I, I think that's what parents try to do. I think that's what pastors should, should be trying to do. Well, my dad was, was an example of this. Uh, he died 15 years ago at the age of 93. Uh, when dad was in his late 80s, he had several bouts with illness and broken bones that required long hospital stays and rehab hospitals. And when he was in his late 80s, he started wanting to talk to me about his will. I hated it. I hated that. I didn't want to talk about my dad dying. And I told him we could talk about that later. He's 89 or 90. <laughs> we can talk about that later, dad. Because you know you're a spring chicken. Oh, my. I wasn't at peace with this, and I told an older friend about it. I, was, I didn't like my response. I didn't like Dad to talk to me about that, and I didn't like my response to it. And he told me that my putting my dad off until later probably saddened my dad. He said that his desire to prepare me for his death 
was one of the most loving things he could do for me at this stage of his life. He's loved me so well, you know, for 49 years. I think I was 49 when he died. He loved me so well and walked me through so many things. But he said, now, now in your dad's heart and mine, now is the pinnacle. Now is, is that final declaration of I love my kids and I want to prepare you for a better future without me. That's what, that's what my friend helped me to understand. That dad had a plan to provide for our needs and remember his love after he was gone. And he said that my dad's planning ahead was a way for us to help us have peace in his plan. So there were so many similarities to some of the things that we're going to learn about our Savior today. Along comes the first week of January 2008. And... You guys, dad began talking about his death and his plans for us in his will with an urgency that I hadn't seen before. So we're a, an affectionate family. You know, it's so funny, Ricky, talking about family and, you know, especially when there's a lot of extended family and is this my uncle or whatever. So uh, um, my dad's side of the family were Arabic from, from Damascus, Syria. And so growing up, I'd get kissed all the time by all these different men. <laughs> And I would say, Dad, why is that man kissing me? He said, because he's your uncle. I said, is he really our uncle? No, he's just an Arab, but every Arab is your uncle. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so he was kissing me a lot, and he was holding my hand a lot. He would touch my forearm when he talked to me. He'd hold my forearm a lot. And he fell several times that week. We were in and out of the doctor's offices repeatedly. And while we sat in the waiting room in one of those appointments, Dad told me, son, I'm ready to go be with the Lord. And, and the, the Lord really it just was in the last year and a half of his life that we really were confident that Dad truly had experienced a born-again relationship with Jesus. And uh, he had a very hard day after another fall, and so I stayed overnight with him at his assisted living apartment and didn't get much sleep. You know, you've been with somebody that you love dearly, and they're hurting, and, and uh, even if they're sleeping, there's still that groaning, that the pain is so, so present that even they're sleeping, they're feeling it. And the next day, I told him I had to go out of town. Um, one of my sons was, was playing junior high basketball, and I was volunteering to help be an assistant coach for that program. And on our drive home, my dad called me to ask me if I was come by, if I would come by and if I'd stay with him again that night. I told him I wouldn't be coming that night. I would be up to see him in the morning. We talked about just, you know, I, I haven't been getting that much sleep and I, I just have to get, recharge my, tank, my tanks a little bit. And he was in good care and, and I'd be there early in the morning to see him. And so he called me again during the drive. It was about a 50-mile drive. He, and he called me again. He asked me a second time, would you please come see me and be with me again? He said, my heart's troubled. He felt very strange, and he didn't know why. I told him, Dad, you just had, you've had a hard couple of days. You haven't slept well. You need a good night's sleep. And, and again, I, I won't be coming tonight in spite of his asking me twice to do so. Actually, it ended up, there was one last thing that happened later that evening that really seemed to be a nudge from the Lord that really you should go be with your dad, and I still didn't do it. Around six in the morning, I get that phone call from the assisted living center saying, 
your dad died around 3 a.m. that morning. You guys, I was overcome with tears. Uh-huh. I, I just, I don't know if you've ever been in that, that, that point of grief where you just, all you can say is, no! No! But I got to also be honest with you, my tears were not just because he died. My tears were because after being loved so well by my dad for 49 years of my life, and being loved so well during the last week of his life when he did everything he could to prepare me for a life without him, my last act toward my dad before he died was to turn down his request to come and be with him in what would prove to be his final hours. At that moment, I thought, you know, I, I, I didn't mean any harm in my decision. I, I know I'm not omnipresent. I can't be every place at one time. I know that, that there was no intentionality to it. It was, I guess, an error in judgment. I don't know what you would call it. But you know how it felt? It felt like the biggest failure of my life. That's how it felt. How could I possibly overcome a failure of that magnitude? You have one of those. We all have one of those, don't we? There's a failure that you, if you look back at your, your years, there's at least one that, that still maybe haunts you a little bit. Now take, let's go to the text. So I felt this way about a loving but imperfect dad. What would 11 disciples do who did this to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How would they have felt when they willfully abandoned Jesus after his arrest? How they rejected him when when he as a human being needed them the most? Jesus loved them perfectly for three years of his public ministry. And that perfect love was never more on display than than during the last week of his life when he sought to prepare and empower them to live for his glory after he was gone. And their very last act toward this God of love just before he dies is to spurn him, deny him, reject him, and run away. How does anyone recover from a failure like that? How does that, how does that failure not define you? How does it not define you? How does that failure not creep in and kind of smuggle itself and becoming part of your identity? I mean, the world, people may say, oh, thank you. you you've served me so well or I appreciated your skill in that area or, or whatever. But when you look in the mirror, you don't see that. That, that, that failure, that voice, that, I, that, that sense of that's my identity. I, I don't know that there's any way to overcome it. Oh, guys, is it possible for God to still make something beautiful out of our lives in spite of our worst sins and in spite of our worst failures against him or against someone else? Because it's not just against the Lord that we've done magnificent failures. We've done them against spouses. We've done them against our children. We've done them against our employer. We've done them in so many different ways against a church member. 
Oh, but there's such good news in this text, isn't there? Our text joyfully calls out to us with a resounding, yes, there is a hope and a future for a child of God. And even his or her worst failure or worst sin. And why? Because Christ has overcome the world. So I'm not being silly or childish with this, but it's just the scripture. Could we, could we say that together? Christ has overcome the world. And I pray, ask that you'd already start being applying that to that area of your life that you have deep regrets for, and sometimes those regrets still whisper in your ear. This text is a powerful word of hope to those you who are still haunted by your sin and failure, whether whoever it was against. This is a word of hope for those who are in the face of pressure or persecution. You have actually chosen righteousness. You know, guys, I, I, you know, in my lifetime, I've, there's never been this degree of cancel culture. You know what cancel culture is doing? And I look, I look at your young people. So you guys have to understand something here. Yeah, I am looking at you. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I get all mushy and stuff when I look at people and, you know, going, is this guy loco? I mean, is this guy crazy? You know, I mean, I get there's a welling up of emotions when I look at a younger, young man's face like you. And the hope I have for, for the future of the gospel through you being a minister of it. Not necessarily pastor or whatever, but you being a minister of it. You know, so when, when I look at you guys, you know, it's very possible for you to be living a godly life and the world doesn't necessarily welcome godly living. And the world could begin pointing at you and saying, what a failure you are. With all the skill and talent and all the grades you got in school and you could have been somebody you could have climbed the corporate ladder, but you're a Christian. Even serving the Lord. I mean, Spurgeon died in, in, in the eyes of many, a failure. Jesus died in the eyes of many, a failure. So even doing the right things in a fallen world, you can still get labeled a failure, and that can hurt. This is a word of hope for those of you who've pulled back from serving the Lord. You've begun to believe the whispers you've been hearing, that there's not much more about you than just your, the, the biggest memorable thing of your life is your failure, and you've lost sight that the most memorable thing of your life is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit who made you alive to your need of a Savior, and you confessed your sin to the Lord, and he lavishly forgives you and adopts you as a son or daughter. That's the most memorable memory of a moment of your life, amen? That's the most, but it's just easy. The lies keep coming in, and, and so you're backed away. There was a time you gave not just your, the, the acts of your hands and the, work, the works of your hands and feet. You gave your heart to serving other people, but something happened, and you, there was a sense of failure, and yet you've pulled back from serving the Lord. You may still be serving the Lord in body, but you've pulled your heart back because you're afraid of failing again. Well, again, great news from our text. Christ has overcome the world. Here's the main point this morning. Follow Jesus, precious family because he's faithful in our failures. 
and gives peace in tribulation. First point is, is um, you know, look at this narrative a little bit, not just in just exact verse by verse format, but uh, starting with uh, the first point is we need peace because we have tribulation. Says Jesus wasn't didn't sugarcoat anything, did he? In the world you'll have tribulation. That's that's a state of living in a fallen world. Um, so I think it's it's when you're when you're doing your Bible reading, I think as you're, whether it's a devotional or you're doing a little Bible study, I, I think it's good to ask yourself the question: What is the problem that this text? that God has given us this text, what's the problem it's meant to solve? What's the problem of, of heart that it's meant to solve? What's, what's the problem maybe in the church that it's meant to solve? What's the problem in the sense of Christian mission that it's meant to solve? What's the crisis this text will cure? That could be another way of saying it. Well, verse 33, it's very, very clear what the problem is. In the world, this sin-fallen world, this Satan-influenced world, um, uh, uh, with worldly mentalities in thinking, thinking that you can find life and love and satisfaction in the world and not in God, which was the lie from the beginning. In that world, you will have tribulation. There's the problem, amen? There's a problem, and it seems sometimes like a bigger problem than we can face, but in comes the rushing river of God's word with a solution for this crisis. In the world, you will have tribulation. The word means crushing pressure. You ever felt like you're almost feeling strangled? It's becoming hard to breathe, that kind of pressure. A suffocating pressure, a soul-crushing, a hope-crushing kind of pressure. And so Jesus has been speaking in various ways, you know, up until this point, as you look back through any of the Gospels, not just the Gospel of John. Um, and he's been talking about various ways this pressure would come. It would come from satanic lies and attacks. It would come from the consequences of our sin. It would come from being persecuted for our faith. And as bad as all of those are, it's so interesting to me as one who so often would identify my life as, as a failure. It, it's so amazing to me that in this description of tribulation, the sermon illustration Jesus uses, if you would, is the failure of his disciples. And that, I hope, I hope that captivates your heart. That has captivated my heart. That's made me want to read more. And I hope it's making you want to listen more. Because I think that, that certainly Christ's peace and his overcoming the world has application for any kind of tribulation. But I think that, that in this text, he's talking about that tribulation. There's, there's, there's not a tribulation like feeling like you're the worst thing in the world. You failed more miserably than anyone has ever failed before. That's a tribulation. And it's a tribulation Jesus overcomes. It's a severe form of tribulation when we have failed someone. And here these disciples are just hours away from failing them in spite of their confession of faith. They were about to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd, each to his own home, and they would leave him so that he would face the greatest battle of his life alone. Did you notice it says that they each ran off to their own homes? 
Isn't that a good description of how we initially react to fear and failure? It's disorienting. Do you think well when you're, when you're gripped by failure? Do you make good decisions when, when you're gripped by failure or you're afraid of failure? It's just disorienting. This kind of tribulation is disorienting. You, you feel like you've lost your balance. And the goofiest illustration, I'm so sorry. And I'm so old that my illustrations are all a 1,000 years old. So for the younger ones, please forgive me. But maybe there's still something that's similar to this. So there used to be in these amusement parks something called a tilt-a-whirl. Can you just humor me by saying, does anyone remember a tilt-a-whirl? So it's everybody 50 and above. Well, and I'm not, somebody's going, I'm 38. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'll never forget, I have three sons, and uh, so... Tilt-a-whirls were weird to me because, first of all, they look like a teacup. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I should put my growing boys into a teacup because this, do they lose their man card? They're going to go in to sit in a teacup. And, and this is going to be, but then as I'm getting the gist of what this ride is about, you remember that this, the, the thing is spinning. So there's all these teacup things. They're, they're sitting in there and that whole platform is spinning one way. And then you get into the teacup thing and there's that wheel in the teacup thing. And then, especially if you're, well, maybe women do this too, but men, ladies, have you ever noticed how proud men are? Right? So we get into this thing and we're, we're, it's not enough that we're spinning around you know, like this, we have three, we have, we have four raised men in this teacup. And we start discovering that if we start turning this thing, the, the cup itself starts spinning. And what a great idea this is. This cup is going to be spinning and the whole platform is spinning. Doesn't that sound like fun? So our pride kicks in and it's like faster and faster. And then the boys were starting to you know, <laughs> I don't know the gravitational force of the G4. I don't know what it is. But they're, you know, now their hands have come off it. But proud dad, no. <laughs> We're going to spin it faster and faster. We get off the ride. I, I, is this, I, I, and we're all... Man, good thing a police officer wasn't around because we couldn't have walked a straight line. We were all this. And the next thing I know, two of the three boys, they're vomiting. And Anyway, you're going, what's the point of that illustration? <laughs> Fear is disorienting. But it's, it's a disorientation of the soul. It's, that was of our balance. But this is just of our, of our soul. It's a feeling that that comes with, I don't know that I can be with people having done what I've done. I, I probably need to separate myself from other believers. So remember, they went off to their homes, right? They're, they're running off and they're separating and they're isolating themselves. And doesn't that still happen to us today? I don't know that I'm, I'm ever going to be acceptable again to the eyes of others, especially if my failure was so public that other people knew about it. And in that separation and feelings of rejection, we just tend to isolate ourselves and we don't come out of our houses. And then we think we're safe only when we're, and it's, and when we're by ourselves, we're isolated and, and we've even locked the door of our house and yet Satan's lies 
somehow get past the door and they begin convincing us that we're hopeless. In those moments, failure seems fatal and failure seems to have the last word. A failure like that threatens to define us and rule over us for the rest of our lives. Can I tell you that there's only one sovereign in the world and it's not your failure. Your failure is not the dictator of your future. Your loving God is the one who's determining your future. And Jesus knows our sin, so this is first just this sweet point coming out of this. He is also the triune God. He's part of the triune God who is in the ever-present now, the eternal past, the eternal future, He's seeing everything as though it is present. Jesus chose these guys knowing that they were knuckleheads, knowing that they were scaredy cats. He knew they would leave him in the last hour. And he had a plan in advance for them to recover. He had a plan in advance for them to overcome. I think we need to feed that into our thoughts of failure. You didn't surprise God with it. He already had a plan to help you overcome it. Let's look at the second point. Well, and by the way, and that's why in tribulation we, ha we can have peace because we're in Christ, right? In the world, there's tribulation. In Christ, there's peace. Somebody talked about doing like a Venn diagram with this. So I say Venn diagram like, I, like oh, I know stuff. I had to look up, what is a Venn diagram? Um, so, you know, two circles, and then, you know, you overlap the circles to where in the middle part, there's like this, this connecting point. In, in one circle, you could put tribulation. The other circle, you put Christ. In the world, you have tribulation. In Christ, you have peace. And then you put yourself in that middle section because until glory, we're living in a world of tribulation. But if, we, if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. And, and because you're in Christ, you can have peace in that tribulation. I was going to make up a word, that tribulative world. Don't listen to that. But isn't that good news? You guys, don't be like me. I, I want God to give me peace because my problems are over. That's not what God is talking about here. I want to give you peace in the midst of your problems. That's your, your light to the world, that Jesus is Lord. That's how the world knows God is alive in you. Because no one can have this except a Christian. Second point, we have peace because we believe the Father loves us. And it's in verses 25 through 27. Up until now, Jesus has taught them many truths about himself and his mission. They, they understood much of it, but much of it was still unclear to them. He told them that he was the bread of life, the light of the world, the door for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. He told them that he was the better manna. He was the better Moses. He was the better David. 
David. And he was the better temple. And they got some of it. They got some of it, but not all of it. That's why they were saying, could you give us, could you just speak in plain language? But Jesus says in this passage, the hour is coming, meaning now after his death, burial and resurrection, and after he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell them and empower, empower them, all of this will result, all of this will result in the very, very good news that they will personally know the Father as sons and daughters. They'll know the Father, they'll know the Son, and they'll know the Holy Spirit. The Son's made it possible. The Spirit applies it to our lives. In fact, Jesus would so plainly speak to them moving forward. This is kind of cool, you guys, because we find our, kind of our names here a little bit. Because he's going to speak so clearly to these 11 men, so clearly that it would result in 27 books of the New Testament being written filled with the clear teaching about Jesus and his love and the Jesus who has overcome the world so that we sitting at El Paso, Texas some 2,000 something years later can be experiencing the living hope that Jesus has overcome the world just as much as they did 2,000 years ago because we have his living word. So thank you, God, for giving them such clear instruction after your death, burial, and resurrection, and after Pentecost. And what would also be clear is that because of his death on the cross, they would have direct access to God as their father, not just the father of creation. There was a little category in the Old Covenant that they, there, was a, there was a fatherhood to God in regard to him being a creator. But that's not what Jesus is, t is talking about here. This is the father Abba. Um, sometimes I even hear grandfathers, that they, their, their grandkids call them Abba. It's, it's a personal word in the Hebrew language for father. It's, it's super personal. It just, you know, some people try to say it's like daddy, but I, listen, I, I loved being called daddy when, when I was, when I was uh, raising my sons. And I love to hear them being called daddy by their kids, my grandkids. But... I just don't know that daddy cuts it. I, I, not when we're talking about him. There's something, it's got to be a better a way to talk about how personal this relationship is between us as his children and him and the father that's not just father. And that's where this word Abba comes in. Some commentators have said it's like, um, how many grandparents in the, in the room? Can I see how many grandparents in the room? So did you guys, when your first grandchild, you're expecting your first grandchild, and your kids say, what, what do you want to be your grandparent names, right? And so I said, Papa, because that's what my son's called my dad, and it was just very meaningful to me. Uh, Jan, Jan just said, Jan is always the wiser one. Jan just said, well, there's what we want to be called, and there's what the kids are going to call us, <laughs> right? And so that's, that's where, you know, sometimes it's not Papa, it's Glupska. But it's what they recognize. I know, it sounds, this guy is so weird, I know. Um, but, you know, just kind of hear me out, because there's this place where they start recognizing, hmm, I see this guy pretty often. He kisses me on the head a lot. He must be somebody in my life, right? And so they're starting to identify. It's like that first, Glopska. Now, they may learn Papa later. 
Thankfully, all my boys, all my grandkids don't call me Glopska. They call me Papa. That is so cool. But here's what I'm trying to get at. It's this intimacy. There's a recognition. Something wells up inside of the little one that says, you are not like anyone else. You're not like anyone else. You're my Abba. You're my father. There is this intimacy. It's a real thing. And, you know, as, as I'm getting older, there's just things you start wondering, what do I give my life to? If I'm going to focus on some things in the future, what would I want to give my life to? You know what are the things I want to give my life to? You know how many people will say, I can't relate to a father, a, a God who is a father, because I had such a rotten one. Or I didn't even have one. Or I had an abusive one. Or I had one, and he was in the home, but he's never there. I, I, so, so it's hard for, for me to understand father. Listen, isn't it great? God doesn't want to give you just this fatherhood as a doctrine. God wants to give you fatherhood as an experience. That's what, when the Holy Spirit comes into a Christian's heart. Now, it still may take some renewing of the mind. But twice is that Abba used in the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit has come into the heart of a believer. And there is this cry from the soul. Abba, Father. One is the Spirit initiating that call. And the other one is the believer. It's not just a doctrine. As bad as dads can be. And I'm so sorry if yours was. God has come into your life to not just be a doctrinal figure, but a literal father for you. A father who loves you. A father who will never give up on you. So that's what he's talking about here, about this love of a father. Up to now, they would go to Jesus, and Jesus would take their requests to God. But because Jesus' blood would, it would be, he would forgive their sins, and his righteousness would be credited to them. Because then they could be adopted as sons and daughters and united to Christ through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so after Jesus is gone, that's what he's saying. After I'm gone, it's no longer that, you know, during those three years of public ministry, I guess the disciples kind of just came to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, could you put a good word in? <laughs> for me. Um, so there's probably some element of that, right? They knew Jesus was a son of God, but they didn't, I don't know where we stand really with that. And so they would come to Jesus and certainly Jesus would pray for them. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going to go be with the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Guess what? You can go to the Father just like I go to the Father. Did you know that God the Father loves you? As much as he loves Jesus. Oh, man. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It, it's not like the Catholic faith that believes if you go to Mary, you can receive favor from Jesus. It's not like in our house, Josh was our youngest. <laughs> it's not like when Josh would come in because he was sent by, by his older brothers, Will and Micah. Go ask Dad. If we can have ice cream. Remember those days? Those days are so funny. Because Josh was this cute little guy. And so that was their intermediary, right? It's, it's not anything like that. It's personal, intimate, 24-7 access to God the Father. Precious ones, this, God is not a father who tolerates you. 
He only tosses out an occasional blessing because he loves Jesus and you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, so I'll toss out a blessing to you. This is a father who loves you. This is a father who knows the worst about you. He knew how we would sin. He knew how we would fail, how we would turn our backs on him, and he loves us still. And he accepts us not on the basis of our work anyway, but on the basis of Christ's work. That's why it says that the Father gives his love freely to us because we believed in the love of Christ and trusted in him for forgiveness and a new life. This isn't a father who puts up with you just because he has to. This is a father with strong affections for us. The Greek word here is interesting because it's not the word that we would typically associate with the love of God. The love of God typically would be the word, some of you guys know, Agape, agape. This is a word, uh, phileo. We would, un- we would understand it in the United States with Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So it's interesting, isn't it, that this is a word phileo here. And Neil, you know, you know, I love you. So can I use this? Can I come down with you and yeah. do this? What do I do? You can just get ready to be loved. That's... Uh, <laughs> um, so agape is this unconditional love. It has nothing to do with the person. It has everything to do with the character of the one giving it in spite of the lack of character of the one receiving it, right? It's a, it's a love of grace. It's grace motivated. It's for his glory and your joy. But some people just go, okay, I can understand. God loves me unconditionally. But it's, so the, 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 the writers that seem to make sense with this that I think help me they said that he's using the word Philadelphia, it's friendship, it's a, but there's an affection. Do you feel a kiss coming on? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, you guys, if you're, if you're visiting today, please come back because these other guys will not kiss you during their sermons, okay? Um, but it's... You know, that, that thought, have you ever had this thought, I know God loves me, but oh, I don't think he likes me. Or you, the spouse, right? Sometimes, yes, I love you, but I don't like you very much. This is God saying, oh, I unconditionally love you, and I really like you. And here's why I'm going to show it. Mwah. Mwah. Now, you, listen, I, can, I have a proof text for that. <laughs> What is, the, what is the prodigal, the father of the prodigal do? He's never stopped loving him. The love was as perfect when he was out eating with the pigs as it was when he was under his own roof. It was the same love, and he's looking for his return. And he returns, and the Bible says the, the dad falls on his neck and kisses him. And the verb tense for kisses is again and again and again. That's a picture of the heavenly father for us. That's a picture. You mean after, after my failures? Oh, yes. Get ready for some kissing. You know, oh, that's so dumb. That's a dumb way to say it. But anyway, I hope you guys get it. Um, so like, listen, if you're loved like that, you can have peace in every storm because you're in Christ. And that's why the father loves you like that. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done. You can have peace in every storm and sorrow. You can have courage for every battle. Even your failures can become fruitful in the hands of God our Father. Uh, Verse 28 is the next point. We have peace because we believe that the gospel saves us. It's so fun to just 
just like do seek and find all the places the gospel is presented to us in scripture and it's it's done right here this is the pathway this is Jesus again preparing them for his departure to have a a, lo, a better life with him at the right hand of God than if he was physically present with them and so he just literally says the gospel i came from the father this is what you've believed so let me okay so is this what you believe so whenever the scripture says, this is what they believe, okay, great Bible study technique, is this what I believe? And if it's yes, well, praise God, how about believe it again? How about renew your belief in it? He says, I came from the Father. He was heaven sent. That was started right in John chapter 1. He's the eternal son of God. He came into the world. So there's this next part. He became uh, incarnate. He was born in the city of David. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to show us God, to show us our sin, to show us our need for him as our savior and to live a life of perfect obedience to God. And then he says, and now I'm leaving the world. So don't get too fast with that. What was the way he left the world? It's easy to think, oh, his ascension. No. The way he left the world was the cross. Don't forget the cross in our theology. That's super important. I'm leaving the world via his death on the cross as our substitute, satisfying the full fury of God's wrath against our sins so that we could experience the full forgiveness and love of God. And he says, and I'm going to the Father. Here we go. There's the ascension. He rises from the grave to prove the sacrifice was accepted and he ascended to the Father to sit at the right hand. An old school's worship song. John, I don't, I don't know if John Vogan remembers this. It was called, Lord, I lift your name on high. Does anybody remember that one? It's kind of telling this verse. He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Oh, Lord, I lift your name on high. And that's what he's saying. This is why all of this is happening. You believe the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So it's no wonder we can have peace and courage in the midst of sorrow and suffering and in the midst of our worst failures because Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Last point, there's even more good news. We have peace because we believe that Christ is victorious for us. So verse 29, he says, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. That's what the disciples say. Now we know that you know all things and you came from God. Listen, if you're reading John, <laughs> one of the things you should be learning in John is that whenever the disciples are thinking highly of themselves, they're about to blow it. <laughs> so it just, it just happens all the time. So when, when, when they begin saying, oh, now we believe Jesus, kind of just calls them out for it. Um, they, they, they don't get it. They're really kind of showing how much they don't get it. And uh, so Jesus answers, do you now believe? And that wasn't sarcasm. It wasn't Jesus speaking harshly or rebuking or correcting them. It was an acknowledgement that they had truly come to believe some things about him. They have, so they, they, so they had a confession of faith. But in your life, have you ever noticed that your confessional faith is not always your functional faith. That's right. Listen, I want to say that's okay. Not that you want to stay that way, but God is not ticked off at you for that. 
This is a part of sanctification. So do you, do you guys get what I'm saying? Sometimes we talk better than we believe. You know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then an opportunity comes up for you to share the gospel, and it's not a friendly crowd. But it's a, you know it's from God, and you bite your tongue. That's where, that's where my confessional faith is stronger than my functional faith, you know. And that's kind of what's happening here with them. And Jesus warned them about this. He prepared them for this. He told them that their faith was going to be tested in just a couple hours like they've never dreamed possible. And Jesus is telling them that though they believe in him, their real confidence still is in themselves. So let's, let's let the conviction of the Holy Spirit touch us there. Some of my biggest problems is, is that I still believe I can do it. That I'm strong enough. That I'm wise enough. That I can go without my devotions today because I've read some Bible. <laughs> I've preached a few sermons. I'll be able to get, hey, Lord, what if it's like, hey, Lord, take a break. I'll, I got this today. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They were very self-confident still and not God-confident. And they're going to fall and fail and forsake him and leave him alone. And then Jesus said, I won't be alone. And you know what he's saying? He's wanting you to draw out an implication there too. And because of him, you will never be alone either. You're never going to be alone. The Father is with him, and he and the Father have a plan that only Christ alone can fulfill. It's Christ alone that can satisfy the righteous wrath of God. It's Christ alone. So I want you to see this. I want you to see there's this wonderful unfolding of Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. He's doing that right now. Here are these guys. Their last act toward Jesus is rebelling against him, rejecting him, running away from him. That's the last, that's the way they treated him after all he'd done for them. And yet... What needed to be done could only be done by Jesus alone because that was going to be for our good, wasn't it? That was going to be for our good. So let's just, do you want to bring the worship team up? Is, this, is there a time for a song? Or, and I'm, okay, I'm, I'm ending. Um, he and the Father have a plan that only Christ alone can fulfill. It's Christ alone that satisfies the wrath of God. It's Christ alone who crushes the serpent's head. It's Christ alone who can fully and finally forgive sin. It's Christ alone who can give us his very own righteousness. It's Christ alone that can give us direct access and relationship with God as our loving Heavenly Father. It's Christ alone that intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. It's Christ alone who will come again to wipe every tear from every eye and make all things new forever. That would be a great time to say, Amen. Would you stand and we'll close this morning. All of that is summarized in that simple phrase that Jesus gives us. Christ has overcome the world. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. So don't be surprised. You're not failing because you're having tribulation. If you're in Christ, you have peace. And why do you have peace? Because, say it with me, Christ has overcome the world. Ricky, do you want to come and close? I'm going to sing just one thing to help us focus on what Billy so helpfully and faithfully proclaimed. Turn.